Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw, part of the special can series. This will be an extra special episode. We'll be talking about Crimes of the Future, uh, the new David Cronenberg film. Joining me for the conversation, I'm very pleased to have back on the podcast, Amy Taubin. Uh, hello, Amy. Hi, Nick. How are you? I'm really pleased to be here on this podcast that will be going out from Cannes, where I will not be. <laughs> yes, it's it's sad not to have you here. I'm projecting myself into the moment when I will be there. At least we're able to to talk about this one. Where should we begin? Or do you want to talk about Cannes a bit or not being there or anything? I'm sorry I'm not there. I haven't missed Cannes in, I don't know, many years. 30 years, maybe. I didn't go last year either. I'm scared of COVID. I'm old. I don't want to get sick. If I get sick, I want to get sick in New York City, where I know my doctor, I know my pharmacist, you know, all of that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's totally makes sense. And uh, I, I, it's not my favorite part of the trip is that whole gamble involved in it. But uh, we had the chance to, uh, to see the film uh, early. Should we give a little overview of, of what it's about, just generally? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I also need to say that this is preempting my art forum piece on the film and interview with Cronenberg, which doesn't come out till June 1st in print. So art forum uh, said, yes, you can do that, but make sure you mention that. So I have made sure I mentioned that. Yes. Since I've written about this already, I could do an overview. I think it's really an amazing film. I mean, it's kind of like a, a reliquy of previous Cronenberg films and a movement, I think, into the future, meaning that it takes place in the future, sometime who knows how long, and it seems that scattered about the earth are maybe small groups of people. And this small group of people are in Athens. And that's what's really extraordinary about it and different than any Cronenberg film, because he really uses the city. And the city is the birthplace of Western civilization. And it's kind of inscribed there. And so it is a historical film and at the same time, it's a film about the future. And in this future, there is small groups of performance body alteration artists. And, you know, Cronenberg, I mean, his thesis has always been that it begins and ends with the body. You can't separate the body and the mind and the psyche uh, I don't think he uses the word soul, but you can't separate any of those things from the body itself. And in this case, these artists are performing pieces in which they alter and sometimes remove growths from their body, uh, new, new organs. And at the head of these artists, is Viggo Mortensen's character, um, Saul Tenser, and his partner Caprice, who is Lea Seydoux, who is absolutely magnificent in this film. And they do these tattooings of these new inner organs and their removal and 
uh, exhibition. And there are other groups of performance artists who seem to be perhaps more subversive. And it is possible that they are not removing their organs, their new organs, which may possibly be inherited then by their progeny, maybe. And it may be a way that humans mutate to cope with what they've done to the environment. And what's extraordinary, you know, the Cronenberg thing, it's so hard. I remember years trying to get a read on Videodrome and just refusing to believe that the new flesh could be something that I wouldn't consider good or morally right. And of course it isn't. The new flesh is produced by our addiction to pornography and violence and sex. And I will never forget Cronenberg saying to me, well, you know, the first use of any reproductive technology has always been pornography. Um, Mm. And I didn't ever want to think about that at that point. And so this this film is about how do we cope with plastic? Because we probably can't remove it. So will the human body be able to cope with the plastic in the environment and in doing so become less human but continue to exist? And, you know, that's what the film is about. Yeah. I was really struck by the performance art aspect that, you know, the main characters are this couple who who are, yeah, they're basically a, a couple of collaborators, artistic collaborators. So the movie... I guess it's not really driven by necessarily the crisis that's created, you know, by this other generation of performance artists. It seems more like emotionally driven by, you know, these two artists kind of pushing themselves. At least that's how I took it, that the the movie's almost more about those, like their need for growth, just in terms of their art. Uh, and, you know, so for Leia Seydoux's character, it seems that she wants to move into doing performance, whereas till then she's been, she kind of enables or, or assists with, with his, his being the kind of main, you know, live autopsy event. Um, but she wants to be more in, in the center. So I, I was kind of interested by that emotional dynamic in it. And I only, I only single it out because that was such a kind of familiar dynamic somehow against the backdrop of these, you know, completely out, <laughs> completely extreme, you know, science fiction premises. So, you know, at the heart of it also is just, you know, just a kind of natural artistic desire. Yeah. I mean, I also think this is a really romantic movie. Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, and it is a movie about, at its center is a couple and a couple who are, I mean, it's not clear in the film that they are, well, they don't do the old sex anymore. (laughs) One of (laughs) those very funny lines is when the third person in this film, who's important character is uh, Kristen Stewart plays a kind of upright bureaucrat named Timlin. And Timlin is intensely repressed and twitchy. It's a, It really is a very funny comic performance. Uh, And the film is very funny. And it's very funny in a kind of Burroughs way (laughs) about how um, Cronenberg described it, how how we need the old forms 
even though we're in a situation where it seems that the old forms are ridiculous. And so it's very funny how we hold on to the old forms. And she's the person who, who is the administrator of the old forms, but she also has the hots for uh, Saltenser and tries to come on to him. Yeah. And he tells her that he's not any good at the old sex anymore. Yes. Yes. It's it's funny. I mean, yeah, there there is a strong amount of humor in it. I I I think it's I think it's a movie where the the premise of it might lead people in a different direction than what they actually see with with the movie. I mean, you know, just reading early descriptions of it. I mean, the the structure of the movie is really interesting because in a way, it's sort of like it sounds absurd to say, but it's it's sort of a kind of conversations in rooms kind of movie. It is. You know, they're having these dialogues which are beautifully written I, I i found myself just like writing down whole lines of dialogue because he just had this way of like encapsulating these these concepts that and then with these sort of set piece scenes of of a particular procedure going on usually a public operation surgical operation dissection of some sort so that structure alone was kind of i think might be unexpected to some people who are expecting some more of a crescendo or build up. I, I, I didn't take the movie in that way. I was kind of more settling into it. It's, it's groove of moving between those dialogues and, and then these kind of, yeah, exposure scenes. Well, in the interview Cronenberg did with me, he, he was speculating that each new organ that saw tensor grows inside him could be um, like an episode in a television series. <laughs> I mean, we were talking about how the narrative was not what what people expect in mm-hmm. narrative. And it is definitely a talkie. Mm-hmm. But I also found it just exquisitely beautiful, the way I don't usually find Cronenberg's film. And I think it's really important that it took place in, takes place in Athens, and that the film really looks like a bunch of Last Supper paintings mm-hmm. or Renaissance paintings. I mean, a lot of chiaroscuro lighting on faces and bodies combined with these uh, kind of grotesque plastic and tentacled containers and that seem to be extracted from existence and naked lunch. Mm-hmm that are the kind of strange futuristic past life of the planet look. Yeah. So, and it's quite dark. I mean, the color is just turned down, except when you see the sea, which you do at the beginning of the movie, which is just this gorgeous blue Mediterranean. Yeah. I mean, that the at the opening scene, it starts off with a couple of people and you kind of wonder, are these the last people on earth? Or at least I did. <laughs> And I think there's something about the uh, the setting in Athens that you know also plays that up. That Athens, you know, as you said, being this cradle of culture, but also being a place of ruins. So the sense of all this going on in, in this kind of ready-made, you know, old-world setting, uh, I think that's a really interesting juxtaposition. So yeah, it's not like an anonymously modern or an anonymously Toronto. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I mean, he originally want, was going to shoot, he wrote the script 20 years ago, and it isn't much change from that script. 
uh, and he couldn't get financing for it. Hmm. And pretty much the same producer who wouldn't give him financing pulled it out and said, we'll finance this. Huh. Uh, and it's the first film that Cronenberg has made in eight years. I also think it's kind of like a magnum opus with an opening towards the future. I don't know, maybe he'll go back to shooting in Toronto, but I was getting awfully sick of Toronto. Mm. Um, and it, there's just a big difference if you think of the end of the world and that being tragic and postmodern Toronto skyscrapers crumbling, big deal. But Athens crumbling is something else. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, especially in this context of people taking the like potential deterioration of the body as a site of creation and and creativity. Actually, I thought about just the kind of artistic quandary. Uh, I I always thought that was kind of what the film also is dramatizing and, and that soul tensor expresses, you know, I think someone asks him like, what are you going to be doing next or something? He says like, I don't, I don't think it's my control or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's something that I'm always fascinated by, you know, how much, how much the artistic process is something that you're working at, you know, diligently every day and how much there is inspiration that, you know, is, is some fusion of, you know, chance and I don't know, <laughs> and creativity, you know, it felt like a perfect metaphor for that. The fact that these things grow and he somehow guides them or fosters them or hosts them but it ultimately feels somehow out of his control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, the way I think Cronenberg thinks about the body. Mm. And also that it is mortal. I mean, I do not think it, without giving it away at the ending of the movie, there is some notion of transcendence. But it isn't like, you know, no one, how do I say this? without giving things away. It is as if Saul is, in some ways, a Christ-like figure who is not necessarily going to die on the cross, although he might transcend. It's kind of better living through chemistry. Remember that DuPont saying? (laughs) His movie is about better living through chemistry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The other thing is, I mean, I keep reading people and I think that Cronenberg did this himself and certainly Neon wanted to promote this film as people will faint and they will, you know, walk out after five minutes. So right Right. now in New York, uh, 10 days before this movie is shown, I really wonder if that will happen because I did not find this movie at all difficult to watch ever. And I suspect, however, that it might be different for straight men. Hmm. Because, you know, this movie is about ecstasy through the body being penetrated. <laughs> that really, I mean, the unco- you know, the movie is hallucinatory and it's like a very long uh, wet dream. <laughs> and in this very long wet dream, Saul's body is penetrated by, largely by his lover, Leia, in very, uh, Leia Seydoux plays the character, uh, in very creative ways. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's true. Yeah, there there are endless possibilities with the point. (laughs) Yeah, well, there are two things. You mentioned the, the kind of, whether there'll be a squeamishness about it or not, and 
It's funny because part of what is would what would make one squeamish about surgery or something like that is the feeling that it's that it's a, a transgression against against the, the flesh that it's somehow an injury. But you, I, I didn't get that. You know, when these things are happening, these aren't injuries because he's they're inviting them. It's so I wonder if that's part of why it didn't feel particularly grisly. I mean, it's like there's there's like a lurid detail to it, but you know, it's fantastical and and. I thought I thought more of just like sweetmeats or something because <laughs> so, you know, I, I it began to like morph into other other textures yeah like like food or something at a certain point and because there's even not necessarily a lot of blood but yeah the, the, then the other aspect yeah the the erotic aspect of it I mean the whole thing is and then there are these synths the synth score has this kind of pulsating quality it feels like it's coming from in your body <laughs> yeah I mean I thought. It- I wrrote, but I then when I saw the film again, I was sorry I wrote that. It's kind of like techno I said techno Wagner, but it's more like techno Mahler. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. much brighter the tonalities of it, but it definitely got this synth undertone. yeah uh, and the music is really important because it does, even though there's a lot of talking, it's almost like early 20th century opera. It's kind of like speaking to the music mm-hmm. um whatever it is in german i mean there's a there's an intoning quality to, to the dialogue that makes it mesmerizing you know one thing that was interesting to me here was also i mean speaking of like performance the the public exhibitions these you know because this is what he does as a performance artist do it in public and i was to think how that you know corresponds to these previous scenes in Cronenberg movies where you have some public demonstration of something and it goes terribly wrong. <laughs> but in this case, you ha- the, the performances are, they're like these kind of, you know, generative experiences for, for people just to watch and, and consume. Right. But there's also this suggestion right out of film noir, that kind of noirish aspect of naked lunch and existence that Saul is living this double life and he's also a performer and all these performance artists aren't forming on each other. Well, to both to this police guy (laughs) who is the captain of vice and he wants to know about this organization that uh, the Christian Stewart character and the wonderful Don McKellar, they run this organization, which is like the repository of organ tattoos because all the new organs have to be tattooed and registered and that's what Saul in the end refuses to do he refuses to remove it at a certain point he begins to refuse to register what's happening Mm -hmm. to him so there's that part of it that's uh it's very like Burroughs I mean this is Cronenberg's own naked lunch and while I think that Burroughs was really important to him as a literary formative influence. And also, I really do like Naked Lunch, even though it was my piece that I think Cronenberg forgets that when he disses this all the time and that someone wrote saying it, it's the wrong bodies. Well, that's the headline that <laughs> Sight and Sound put on the piece that I wrote about Naked Lunch. Sorry, David. (laughs) (laughs) So I just think that there's a lot of that notion of Burroughs of uh, surveillance 
And that's what Saul and his partner, what they managed to escape from and refuse. Yeah. Oh, and then, I mean, one other thing, I, I think... I think I mentioned that I was reading Cronenberg's novel Consumed Mm -hmm. and I I was reminded a bit of the relationship in this movie uh, reminded me a little bit of the relationship between the two French philosophers uh, a bit also because they also in the book, they engage in kind of creative bodily consumption and uh, reconfiguration and that sort of thing. Well, the guy who does the dance in the middle, I mean, that's, You know, it's just a little performance that doesn't really seem to have anything to do with the narrative. But at a certain point, you know, they're Mm -hmm. in this performance venue. And and that, he's a very famous performance artist who does a lot of things with putting ears all over himself. Uh, Um, But I also asked, and so basically what Cronenberg told me was that when he made this, when he wrote this, of course he was aware of a lot of performance art that was taking place, and a lot of it had to do with the body, like Vito Acconci, or a lot of that was body-based. And Stellart is the guy who puts ears all over himself and uses photographs and live performance and Hmm. doesn't cut himself up on camera or on stage, but it's about body mutation. And he was aware of Stellart. And he also was aware of all those people like Akanchi when he wrote it. And he basically said the fact that people are doing it made me understand that it is something that people are thinking about. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, but he wasn't aware of Medusa. Tiamat Legion Medusa, uh, who is a performance artist, who about 20 years ago started altering themselves to become a reptile because they did not want to live anymore like a human being because they believed that humans had were bad, bad to the planet, bad to each other. And so uh, Medusa wants to go out of this world as a reptile. And slightly after that transformation began, Medusa began transitioning from male to female. And so they, Medusa, sometimes also work with another artist named Carlos Mata. And Mata, they had a show in New York recently. It was a show of video Hmm. because they do um, suspension performances. And Medusas are particularly grisly because Medusa is suspended by pieces of flesh. And there's a whole history going back also with this to Bob Flanagan and people like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I could never bear to watch Bob Flanagan just because it it seems so painful. And uh, Medusa, I can't bear to watch because also it seems so painful. Uh, But here, there is a given at the beginning of the film that human beings have learned how to do away with pain. So Cronenberg gives you this situation where you're watching all this cutting and taking organs out of the body. But the premise is that no one feels any pain. And in that sense, they have become like insects Hmm. who also don't have a nervous system that feels pain, although they do have some desire to some sort of life force 
self-preservation thing, but it isn't pain as we think of pain. Yeah. Apart from the, the, the surgeries, the, that notion was actually the most frightening thing, I think, in the movie for me. I think someone says that, you know, yeah, how do you know what something wrong is going on? You know, how do you know if you've been poisoned or something? You know, how do you, you don't know anymore. That kind of suspension is, there's almost something disembodying, ironically, about not having pain. So yeah, that, that, that aspect of the premise was kind of disturbing to me. Although, yeah, it is kind of just set there as a kind of axiom of the film and, and not, um, although there does seem to be some aspect of discomfort because there's there's a fair amount made of Soul Tensor having trouble with his bed or cocoon he sleeps in that doesn't doesn't anticipate his pain or something like yes, that. Yes, has to keep adjusting his body. Yeah. So that it it anticipates where it would be painful. So maybe they haven't got a hundred percent going in this painless <laughs> existence. Yeah. Um, hard to parse that, but certainly the cuttings don't seem to. Uh, cause any pain whatsoever. So I just took it. Well, they're not painful. <laughs> yeah. This, I mean, this is a movie I, I want to see again. Actually, I'm, I'm curious because I think you mentioned that seeing it a second time, it was a different experience. That, uh, what, what did you find was, was different about Well, that? second times are always different. Um, I mean, they always are. I also had an intense, because I do this a lot, a kind of intense, how can I describe it? I, I somatize a lot in movies. Like when I saw The Red Shoes, uh, a week after seeing The Red Shoes, I could no longer walk down long flights of stairs because, you know, she runs down that mm. long flight of stairs at the end and overbalances at the edge and goes down onto the railroad tracks, intentionally or not. And I was... Totally, and I still to this day cannot walk down long flights of stairs. Um, so I somatized in this movie, and although I didn't faint or do any of those things that they keep saying people will do <laughs> or have to walk out of the theater, about, and I was totally, I felt this great sense of release, physical release at the end. You know, like mm -hmm. I transitioned with him wherever he went. And then about an hour later, my throat closed up. I couldn't talk. <laughs> um. I couldn't eat because that's what happens to him in the film. And that mm -hmm. continued for about 24 hours. But mm -hmm. I somatize a lot in movies, yeah. That must make, that makes Cronenberg movies especially uh impactful <laughs> yeah uh so since that had happened to me it didn't happen to me the second time so that was the way it okay. was different it yeah. wasn't as big a physical experience yeah um, and i was more able to watch different aspects of the film and mm -hmm. you know uh, see how it was put together and stuff like that rather than yeah. i mean it is very much it is hallucinatory and if you go with it, it's like being pulled into someone else's dream. Mm -hmm. There's that quality of, of just kind of this even movement through, yeah, some sort of nebulous <laughs> uh, <laughs> reality. I don't know. It, it's hypnotic. It's it's pretty hypnotic. Well, I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll come back to the film uh, again down the road. Uh, and yeah, everyone look out for uh, Amy's art form uh, feature and interview. 
And there was one other film that uh, we wanted to cover also uh, that I think Amy, you saw, and that is uh, Les Amandiers, which I guess the English title... The English title at the moment is Forever Young. And I don't think it's been bought yet for the States and whoever buys it should think of a better title than that. Um, uh, But it is by Valeria Bruni Tedeschi, who is a really, really fine director and wonderful actor. And this is by far the best thing. She's not in it as a performer, but she co-wrote it with and Naomi Lebovsky, and one other person. And she directed it. And it is not exactly autobiographical, but it's based on a year she spent studying with the director Patrice Giraud, who had a very famous acting school, the kind of Paris version of the actor's studio, but not quite, I think much more interesting uh, with much more interesting results but that's me and Shiro had an enormous influence on uh, Brunita Deshki's life as an artist uh, and so someone suggested to her well why don't you make a film about the school and this was a particular moment when uh, it was the beginning of the AIDS crisis in Paris uh, mm. So it was the very, it was really the late 80s. And Shiro, who is played <laughs> in the film by the marvelous Louis Garrel, and he's never been better in anything in his life and is totally magnetic, but in a very different way than Shiro is magnetic because Garrel is also gorgeous <laughs> in this film. So you could see how he would have a powerful effect on anyone who came near him. <laughs> um, and basically, though, it is an, an incredibly accurate depiction of a great way of teaching people who are talented how to tap into the talent they have as performers. Um, and the central actor plays the part of Stella, and I cannot pronounce her last name. It's Nadia Teres-Giewicz, who had a small part in a film, a Dominique Mal film, with uh, Brunita Deschi, and she cast her. And I think she could be a great star. I mean, it's an absolutely stunning performance. It's as stunning, and this film is as stunning as Cassavetti's opening night or Children of Paradise, the Marcel Mm -hmm. Kahn, or Mm -hmm. uh, any um, Renoir's Golden Coach, as any film I've ever seen about acting in the theater. It is just amazing. And at the same time, you know, you go step by step through these people learning how to do things, and then they come to New York to to genuflect in front of the actor's studio, and they're considerably better trained by that point. Um, Mm -hmm. And and they do certain plays and audition with certain scenes that reverberate with their lives in the play uh, so that Stella is involved with Etienne, and Etienne, who's played with Sofiane Beneche, is he's a junkie actor, and she tries to save him. 
in the way that is a kind of reprise of a scene she does at the beginning from the seagull. Anyway, it is an amazing film, and it is amazingly shot hmm. by uh, Julianne Poupard. I don't know who that is, but the film looks great. But the thing is that these actors, just like the actors in Cassavetti's films, you know that she did not make them hit their marks. They have so much freedom in front of the camera. And yet this camera, which is sometimes handheld and sometimes not, and mostly works in wide angle, but close, very close, is almost another character in the film. And it's always perfectly in focus. Oh, yeah. amazing. Unlike the Cassavetes film where the camera was always so such a problem because the actors just moved at will and didn't hit their marks. And that was always a terrible problem. But this film is gorgeous. I just think it's an amazing piece of work. Oh, wow. As I said, I've seen like four movies that she's directed. They're always interesting, and they're usually interesting for their social and political dynamics. Hmm. I mean, they have a lot to do about money and who has money and who doesn't, and money and power, uh, because she comes from an extraordinarily wealthy family. And in this film, she's the character who is her, uh, Stella, looks nothing like her, but also is somewhat cut off from the others because she lives in this kind of palatial house and they're all squatting and (laughs) living in squalor like young actors. But that's not uh, foregrounded in this film in the way that it's foregrounded in a lot of her films Mm -hmm. have to do with power and class and money. Interesting. This is also a, a competition film. And and if I were on the jury, this would give the Cronenberg film a run for its money. Oh, yeah? Really? Yeah, it's that good. I mean, neither of them will win anything. It's France. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what do you think will win? You, I haven't seen speculate. anything. <laughs> I know, but you don't, you don't have to. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> Someone had a theory that because Vincent Landon is, is the head of the jury, that that the Claire Denis film would have a chance. Well, I haven't seen the Claire Denis film, but it wouldn't be out of keeping with Gann. <laughs> yeah. Of course, Valeria Bruni Tedeschi, the first time I ever saw her was in a film of Claire Denis, um, Nanette et Bonny, and she's absolutely oh. great. She plays the woman who works in the bakery. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember now. <laughs> the object of desire. And she's hilarious. Oh, and that's what's so great about her film. It has the structure of a Chekhov play in that it begins and you think it's comedy. And it's very funny. And, you know, you are laughing. And as it goes on and on, it gets darker and darker. But it still has pieces of the comedy in it. I mean, it's amazingly Chekhovian. Mm. And it's also that these actors are learning to use that full range of emotion and skills, (laughs) skill, behavioral skill, to be able to play experience, comedy, and tragedy. Yeah. So, yeah, we're we're just as a reminder, we're talking about the the title is uh, Les Les Amandiers, which may or may not titled forever young ultimately but uh definitely a film to watch out for i'm sure it'll wending its way to american theaters and i think we can probably wrap up there 
two strong films. I'm quite happy to leave on that high note. You can have the, the, the final final word. I don't know. Well, I just wish that I were in Cannes when this podcast drops, but mm-hmm. I'll listen to it from the other side of the ocean. Well, thanks for, for giving this preview, and uh, we'll talk again soon about another batch of movies. Okay. Bye, Nick. Travel well. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening. Thank you.